Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating. In the 80s, you really could tell a parent that your child has a devastating neurologic disease. We think it's genetic. There's a chance that it may happen in one in two or one in four with every pregnancy, but we don't know the cause and we we can't do anything about it. And that I found really hard. So I was starting to doubt myself how I am going to do a career in neurology with nothing to offer the patient. So that's when I decided, I think what I need to do is go learn how to do research, learn how to do molecular biology and genetic research so that maybe I can find the genes for some of these diseases. That's Huda Zogby. Her decision to go hunting for genes that cause rare but devastating brain disorders, a decision that was against her boss's wishes, is now helping the patient she was once unable to help. Her work has also led to insights into much more common neurological problems such as autism. For her research, she's now been awarded this year's Kavli Prize in Neuroscience. Another physician scientist inspired by his patients and their families and also a 2022 Kavli Prize Laureate in Neuroscience, is Christopher Walsh. It's a tremendous privilege to be able to take care of patients, particularly children with developmental disabilities. Uh, You know, having a child with a developmental disability is, is a pivotal moment in the life of any adult because it defines their entire adult life, taking care of a disabled child. So my heart and soul goes out to them. It's very motivating. Uh, to be able to try to figure out, you know, what's what's the matter. Uh, and then, of course, I've come to find that also studying humans is just the most amazing science. Chris Walsh's work revealed the remarkable fact that every neuron is unique. It has what is, in effect, its own barcode. And like Huda Zogby's, his research is also providing new insights into the genetic origins of autism. I'll be talking to Chris Walsh in the second half of this special episode of Clear and Vivid. But first, 
my conversation with Huda Zogby. Huda, first of all, congratulations on being awarded the Kavli Prize. That's just great. Thank you, Alan. It's a great honor, and I'm humbled by the prize, humbled by the people I share the prize with, and I feel such a reward for the trainees that have spent so many years working on these diseases with me. And what a beginning you had. Born in Lebanon, grew up there. You're, this is so interesting. You're the second person I've talked to, came from Lebanon, experienced the Civil War, won the Kavli Prize in neuroscience, both of you, Artem Patiputian too. Correct. We grew up in the same neighborhood. Oh, really? We discovered that here in the U.S., that we grew up in the same neighborhood. Well, that's a, that's a fertile ground for talent, I guess. But what was that like? How to go to to go to school to study? First of all, you didn't want to study medicine, right? You you wanted to be to go into literature. That is correct. That was my dream: is to study English literature. I loved poetry. I loved literature, but my mom was very worried about a career in literature and really wanted me independent. So she kept pushing for medicine. And I finally relented, just really to please her. Started uh, in the pre-med classes and ended up in medicine. It's interesting, when you talk about your work, I get the impression that you tell a story as much as you can. When I learned that you started with a love of literature, it made me think that must be where it comes from. Absolutely. I Not only I do it myself, I try to teach my students and fellows to do it this way because it's much easier to fe- follow and understand the science if you tell it as a story. So I totally agree. Well, your story began so cataclysmically with the war. On the way to school, you had to worry about bombs falling nearby and that kind of thing. I've read somewhere that you moved into the school. Correct but not very accommodatingly. Correct. So when when the bombs were intensified and they were falling uh, in the neighborhood, I could not commute anymore. And our class decided to continue with the medical school uh, classes to finish the year, but that meant nobody could commute. You have to find a place to stay within campus. People who were in the dorm had access to places, but those of us who did not have dorm rooms, we had to find a place to live in. So I searched, and it has to be a place with no windows Uh. for safety reasons. So I managed to find a very small space, almost two and a half meters by two and a half meters within the ladies' room and put a mattress on, put a sleeping bag on the floor and slept Uh. there for six months. And then it got so bad, your family decided you should go to the States? Correct. They decided that maybe if we left to the States for the summer, we could return in October, but the war intensified. When Uh we left, we left via Syria. But as the war intensified and there was bomb exchange between now Syria and Lebanon, you couldn't anymore leave via Syria. So with the airport closed and no entry from there, I had to stay here and I had to find a medical school and transfer, which wasn't easy in October because school in America starts in August, medical school. So Mm. 
So, but I was fortunate that I ended up at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, and I was able to continue my medical training. And you, you went into neurology. Yes. So after medical school, I came to Baylor. I actually went into pediatrics and then decided to do neurology, which is a subspecialty within pediatrics to specialize in neurological uh, studies of children. And it was very quickly that I realized this is a very tough specialty mm. because in the 80s, you really could tell a parent that you your child has a devastating neurologic disease. We think it's genetic. There's a chance that it may happen in one in two or one in four with every pregnancy, but we don't know the cause and mm. we don't we can't do anything about it. And that I found really hard. So I was starting to doubt myself how I am going to do a career in neurology with nothing to offer the patient. When all you have to give is bad news. Bad news. And this is when I encountered children, particularly girls with Rett syndrome, and it was a newly described syndrome. And that was even more devastating to watch because there the girls are healthy. They learn to say words, few words. They learn how to use their hands and interact socially. And then sometime after their first birthday, some of these things are lost mm. and they develop seizures. They can't use their hands. They become socially withdrawn. No more words, motor problems. So I found that really devastating. So that's when I decided... I think what I need to do is go learn how to do research, learn how to do molecular biology and genetic research so that maybe I can find the genes for some of these diseases. What led you to think it was a gene? That's a good question because red girls are one in a family. So there's really no indication this is an inherited disease. The parents would be healthy. Hmm. And the siblings will be healthy. So it'll be only one individual in a family. What two things led me to believe this is a gene. They're all females, girls that had typical classic Rett syndrome, as I described it to you. They're all girls. So I couldn't imagine an environmental factor is always selecting girls. Mm. I thought there must be a genetic factor. But really with the experience, as I saw more and more girls with Rett syndrome, as the years passed, when everybody else thought this could not be a gene, I was more and more convinced it is a gene because all the girls went through the same typical course. So that was the beginning of your path as a physician researcher, physician scientist. Correct. Well, that's what I thought was the beginning of my path. <laughs> what stood in the way? <laughs> my mentor. <laughs> so, yeah, see, that, I think I know what's coming. And, and this is another example of your storytelling technique. I don't think you have a good story unless you have an obstacle you have to overcome. <laughs> and your obstacle was the person who you wanted to be your mentor. Correct. Had one condition. Well, he, I, I told him I wanted to train in his lab, and he was really generous. I mean, it's not easy to take an MD when you're running a lab oh. who doesn't know how to do any research and to say, yes, I will mentor you to become a scientist. I, I'd never thought of that. That must yeah, be Yeah, that's not an easy task. Yeah. 
but he was willing. I think he knew about me from the clinics and he knew I'm hardworking and, you know, uh, we'll do a good job. We'll give everything my best. So I think he knew that much. Yeah. But, uh, and so he was willing to mentor me. But when I told him I want to work on Red Syndrome and I showed him, I said, I have samples from like 100 patients. And he was showing me the pedigrees, showing me the families. And I showed them and they're all sporadic. That's when he said, you can't do that. You cannot work on Red Syndrome. You need to all find- sporadic meaning what? One in a family, just random case huh, in a family. Because that, in, that indicated to him that it wasn't genetic? Correct. It's not inherited. So you couldn't, you couldn't really go through a multiple individual family to narrow where in the DNA this gene might map. Back then, we didn't have the technology to do sequencing of a whole genome or whole, you know, uh, part of the coding regions of genes. So you had to first map the gene, define which chromosome it's on, and then sort of walk your way closer and closer to it, and then try to clone it. So the obstacle was that it's not a starter to work on Rett syndrome. And so do, did you work on it anyway on the, in, your, in your spare time? Did you sneak away and, and get You got it. I worked on it <laughs> in my spare time. And I literally would always have... I would dedicate 20-25% of my time to working on Rett syndrome while pursuing a Mendelian or an inherited disorder where you have a big family, where you can map the gene and eventually track it. Is this caused by a spontaneous mutation rather than an inherited gene? Correct. Rett syndrome is a spontaneous new mutation in every family. By the way, I remember a wonderful storytelling element is one of the first or the first patient you diagnosed with Rett was a little girl called Ashley. Is that right? Correct. That is correct. And you even got close to the family, I think. I'm still very close. And her. they live in... Uh, Brenham, I believe, uh, because the father is a professor at Texas A&M, and I'm actually going to visit them on May 20th. I will see uh -huh. them. Uh, Ashley comes by and visits from time to time. And one thing that always strikes me is that she actually knows me. Every time she sees me, she does this reaction where she, her eyes are wide open. Uh -huh. and she opens his mouth, but it's you again. Uh -huh. How did you get to the solution? You discovered what the gene was that was causing the problem. So it was really very slow progress and simply brute force. First, you have to believe it's genetics. I shared with you why I believed it's got to be a gene, given that the disease is always the same. Second, you have to think, because you have no map, you don't even know where to map it, you use logic to figure out of the 23 chromosome, where could it be? And here again, because they're all the cases were females, I suspected it had to be on the X chromosome. Mm. And within the sort of 15 years after I met Ashley, a handful of families came along where a mother will be healthy but she has two daughters who might have who will have Rett syndrome. And 
while I was working in my spare time on Red Syndrome, I collected two such small families where the mother was healthy, but she has daughters with Red Syndrome. Mm. And the fathers are different. So the fact their fathers are different, you have to think this must have come from the mother. But why is the mother healthy? Well, the only way the mother could be healthy, if this was on the X chromosome, females have two X chromosomes. And males have one X chromosome. And nature is not going to let females get away by having something twice as much as males, right? So what happens... <laughs> nature <in> too. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what happens in females, in every cell, only one of the X chromosomes is expressed or yeah. is active, the yeah. genes from that X. So we call that random X inactivation, which means... In any female, half of her, half of the cells will express genes from the X that came from the mother and half from the gene that came from the father. So it's a mosaic. The brain is a mosaic. And half of the cells are maternal X and half of the cells paternal X being expressed. So when I found this mother with two affected daughter and herself healthy, the hypothesis was... For one reason or another, in this one female, all the cells in her brain are expressing the healthy X chromosome. But in her eggs, she has the mutant. Still, she carries the mutant X, the gene on the mutant X. She passes this to her daughter. So she is healthy because she's 100% expressing the healthy X. But her daughters will be affected because 50% of their cells will express that mutant X. And that's something you can test in the lab. And I tested that in the lab while still in arts lab, in my mentor's lab. And I found indeed that mother had what we call non-random X inactivation. She had only one X that's in every cell being expressed or express all the genes being expressed from that X. And to me, that was a great evidence that Tourette's syndrome must be on the X chromosome because you found a family where the mother is telling you there's something different about me. I'm healthy because I only express one of the X's in every cells and her two daughters have the mutation. And that was the hardest paper to publish. Why was that? I think, I, I, I don't really understand why, because to me it was obvious that's the first evidence that there's something on the X chromosome causing Rett syndrome because of the way this family is. But all reviewers, all the top genetics journals, all the average genetic journals <laughs> did not accept it. So I ended up publishing it in a very, very small journal but eventually, you know, I decided to continue to pursue the X chromosome. So now I narrowed the search from 23 chromosomes just to the X chromosome. Mm. And now I have these two sisters, half-sisters, right? They only share the mother, that have Red syndrome. So the question became, which part of the X do these sisters share? Because the gene is going to be on the region that's shared between the two sisters. Mm. Because the mother could give them any one of her two exes, right? Mm -hmm. And I was able now to eliminate 
two-thirds of the X chromosome. And all of that happened over a span of six to seven years. So this is a slow process till you find the families, till you do the experiments, etc. And then eventually another family emerged, investigators in California, uh, Uta Franca and Carolyn Shannon had yet another family with an aunt and a niece. We pooled our data and now we were able to get down to almost, I would say perhaps, you know, 15% of the X chromosome. Now all you have to do is go gene by gene. Just march gene by gene, characterize that gene, and then sequence that. It was all technology we sequenced on the bench, and it went through years, really, of going through gene by gene until finally in 1999 we found the right gene. And it was almost to the day, 16 years from the day I met Ashley. 16 years. What Were you able, having found the gene, were you able to, to do something to help Ashley? Well, it doesn't quite, finding the gene is really the first step. The most helpful thing became to help diagnose girls early. Typically, girls with RET were diagnosed when they're five to seven years of age because it was a clinical diagnosis. You had to wait and see that they developed all these features mm. I shared with you. If they just had features of autism at one or two years of age, you can't call it Rett syndrome yet. They have to lose the use of their hands. They have to develop balance problems. They had to develop seizures and so on. So most girls were diagnosed five to seven years of age. That having the gene helped when somebody suspected by just seeing one or two features of the syndrome, you can do the DNA test and now diagnose them early and now allow physical therapy, some other occupational, there's some other interventions that will help them stay functional and be out of a wheelchair. So we saw a big difference in the patients that I saw before the genetic discovery, where many of them were wheelchair-bound or really severely motor-impaired versus those that were diagnosed earlier in life where intervention helped them stay functional more and some of them continue to be able to walk. So that was helpful. And then the other way it can help is you can begin to explore different types of therapies that we hope we can use to, to treat the girls. What we learned through these studies is unfortunately nothing can fill the gap when this gene is gone. This gene mm -hmm. is sort of a conductor of the orchestra. And only this conductor can sort of tell the brain cells when to fire and when to be quiet. And we need the gene itself to sort of bring back all the healthy functions to the brain. So efforts are now on using gene therapy to help with that disorder. Mm. Because short of that, any other small changes we find in the RNA or in some changes we see in the patients, if you fix them, you're not going to really fix the disease. Where does autism fit into this? 
autism fits into this in that Rett syndrome has features of autism. So the girls, the first thing that happens to them after they've been socially engaged and saying maybe a word or two, they will stop saying words. They will become socially withdrawn. And instead of using their hands purposefully, they'll constantly be wringing their hands. Mm. So these are features of autism. What is autism? Is loss of communication, loss of social interaction, and stereotyped or repetitive behaviors. So this is where autism fits in this. But threat is syndromic autism because it's not just autism. It is all the other problems that come on later, motor balance problems, breathing problems, and so on. So, and as the girls grow older, they start sort of looking with their eyes to sometimes indicate what they like. So they start having not necessarily social eye contact as much as using their eyes to indicate they prefer milk or juice, for mm-hmm. example. One other thing we learned, and that's really important, is that a girl will have Rett syndrome when she has half of her cells with the normal X and half of her cells with the X with the mutation. But if that girl happens to be, for one reason or another, having 80% of her cells expressing the healthy X chromosome and only 20% express the X with the mutation, that girl will not present with Rett syndrome. That Mm. girl will present with pure autism. She might even go to school, graduate high school, but she will have some social communication problems. So you have a spectrum based on the X inactivation pattern. What we also learned, some mutations are milder. They don't totally kill the function of the protein. They might decrease its activity by 25% or 30% or 40% rather than 100%. In that case, those individuals may present with autism, uh, attention deficit and hyperactivity, mild intellectual disability, and sometimes even psychiatric features, OCD, schizophrenia, or bipolar. And are you able now to determine what the cause is without waiting for the symptoms to show up? Correct. You can can do it with a, a DNA analysis? That is correct. You can, if you see a, an individual, for example, with mild intellectual disability and a psychiatric symptom, it is definitely worth doing the DNA analysis and you can tell if they carry mutation in this gene. Or a child with autism, they typically need to be sequenced and this is one of the genes that can contribute to autism. So it can be anywhere from isolated autism with a milder mutation or what we call favorable X inactivation, favoring the healthy X chromosome, or it could be all the way to the syndromic autism with full-blown Rett syndrome. Well, it's thrilling to talk with you and to hear the steps you took to get to this and the steps you'll take to get to the next place. I'm I'm so grateful for your taking the time. Thank you. No, it's been really a pleasure, and it's just so much fun to talk to you. You ask just the right questions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to learn. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you. 
When we come back from our break, I continue our special episode of Clear and Vivid, celebrating some of this year's winners of the Kavli Prize. I'll be talking with Christopher Walsh, whose research has discovered that each of the almost 100 billion neurons in our brains is not only different from its neighbors, but it also contains a clock ticking away the years. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience that transform our understanding of the very big, the very small, and the very complex. From scientific breakthroughs like the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 and the detection of gravitational waves, to inventing new fields of research, Kavli Prize laureates push the limits of what we know and advance science in ways that could not have been imagined. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now on to my conversation with another 2022 Kavli laureate, Christopher Walsh. Congratulations on the Kavli Prize. That's just wonderful. Well, thank you. I read something you said that the first photo you saw of a scientist when you were a child was of your sister in a school lab. Uh-huh. And you said it looked like she was having fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just love that because so many people outside of science don't realize how much fun scientists have. I hear that all the time from scientists. Mm-hmm. Was that yeah. one of the, you think, one of the things that that made it an appealing avenue for you? You know, I really do. I, I, I really only was thinking about that picture after receiving the Kavli Prize and thinking about what were my earliest influences. And I vividly do remember that, you know, that picture. And I, I hadn't really put it together before that that was my earliest picture of what a scientist looked like. Uh, and she was just, she just did look like she was having fun. I mean, I knew my sister. I know what my sister looks like when she's having fun. And so, you know, I identified with her, uh, and I, and she just seemed to be enjoying what she was doing with her, you know, her pencil in her hand and the big picture of bacteria in the background or something like that. Uh, and, I know it sounds strange, but maybe that's just the way I'm wired. It's always interesting what are the little motivating moments for people who reach the top in their field. And I was struck by something else I read, that when you were at the University of Chicago, Mm -hmm. I guess as a grad student, Mm -hmm. a student in your dorm got brain cancer and you witnessed his 
degeneration and eventual unfortunate mm-hmm. death. Yeah. The reason you you mention it, I suppose, is because that was another pivotal moment for you. Oh, it really was, you know, because um, I was very young because I'd skipped a year of high school and I was young for my grade anyway. And, um, you know, I got there to graduate school, which is a great place to be, but his death just made me, you know, wonder, like, what am I doing with my life? And am I doing something to please other people? You know, what would I do if I were in that situation where I had a limited amount of time to live? Would I be choosing to do this particular thing that I'm doing? Uh, and it was very, <laughs> very depressing. I mean, I went through a period of, you know, soul-searching, uh, but ultimately came out on the other end feeling like I'd made a good decision, that I wanted to try to do something useful uh, and purposeful with my life that would that would touch other people. Uh, and I, I, I talked to students, you know, when I talked to, to students about who were at an earlier stage than me about what motivates me and why I'm doing what I'm doing, uh, you know, I tell that story fairly frequently because it was very important to me. And it seemed to me that it played out in the career paths you chose. You're both an a neurologist and a researcher, a physician-scientist, combining both of those perspectives on disease. You see what it, what happens to your patients, right? and then you are in the lab trying to figure it out at its, at its most basic level. Right. Those, those things seem tied together. Am I reading too much into it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's, I, it's a tremendous privilege to be able to take care of patients and uh, to, I find it very motivating uh, because, you know, uh, particularly parents uh, of children with developmental disabilities, uh, you know, having a child with a developmental disability is, is a pivotal moment in the life of any adult because it defines their entire adult life. You know, what will their retirement look like taking care of a disabled child? Uh, and so my heart and soul goes out to them, and I just it reminds me how fortunate I am. Uh, and um, it is it is very motivating uh, to be able to try to figure out you know what's what's the matter. Uh, and then of course I've come to find that also studying humans is just the most amazing science. As I got to try to understand your work a little bit before our conversation today. I was really surprised to learn that, if I have this right, that you figured out that every neuron in the brain seems to have its own genome. Yeah. Is that, that an overstatement of what you came up with? That is um, not an overstatement. The genome's a big place, and so most of the genome is the same between cells, but every, every neuron is born with a hundred or more individual mutations compared to, you know, compared to the egg. So while this cell is dividing in utero, it's accumulating uh, mutations? Right. And we recently found that some of the mutations that predispose to brain cancer arise before the child is even wow. born. Uh, and so those are just the mutations you're born with. Uh, but then the more surprising thing is that the neurons in the brain, which don't replicate their DNA and don't divide, uh, they continue to accumulate mutations at, uh, throughout life, about 15 or 20 a year. Uh, and that was the most surprising thing that we were completely unprepared for. 
And as you get older, do because I mean, I'm guessing there's more stress on your neurons as you get older. Uh-huh. Do the mutations tend to increase more rapidly? You know, that's a great question. As far as we can tell, it's a completely straight line uh, in the normal brain. Huh. It's 15 or 20 per year, your first year of life, and 15 or 20 per year, your last year of life. But then hmm. various disease processes can accelerate that. So uh, we just had a paper out last week that showed that in Alzheimer patients, they have uh, several hundred more than age-matched people who die of other causes. Uh, and um, we have work ongoing. We're trying to understand then what are all of the different influences on this rate of mutation accumulation. So it's related in some way to age, the accumulation of neuron mutations? So that's the thing. There's um, one element is seems to be related to age more than anything else. But then there also seem to be additional ways you can accumulate mutations that might, have, might reflect lifestyle. Uh, for example, we're interested in looking at the brains of football players who have died with mm. uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy that creates dementia. And we suspect that that kind of yeah. brain injury will accelerate the rate of mutations and have some evidence that that, in fact, is the case. So, yeah, there's an element that is just time. Uh, and this element, these, this time-related accumulation, there's a particular pattern of DNA substitution that characterizes this age-related mutation, or it's been called a clock-like signature. When you say clock-like signature, you mean yeah. there are, there are mu- mutations occurring with a regularity like a clock? Exactly. A regularity of 15 or 20 per year, um, Every year of life. Am I right that most of these mutations are what what you call silent? They don't. They wind up not causing any trouble at all. Is that right? That's yeah. About uh, probably ninety five percent of them are silent. But I think that the the way we think about it is that if any given cell accumulates enough of these mutations, they can damage an essential gene so that that neuron dies, and so that every Different neurons with these mutations might be dying from, for different reasons, but when you have enough mutations, it's enough to kill, uh, kill the cell. Some of your work has included something called barcoding. Uh huh. What what yeah. what is that? Yes, barcoding is used uh, mostly to study the development of tissues. Think of a barcode at the supermarket that marks a particular, uh, you know, item uh, at the cash register. It, that barcode has information about where that, you know, where that head of lettuce came from, when it arrived at the store, how long it's been sitting on the shelf, and all that stuff. And so, our genome is basically like that barcode. Uh, it is it's constantly changing, and it records where a cell came from based on the, the, the mutations that occurred in the cell divisions that generated that cell. And it, and it has like a lot number because the barcode will tell what other cells in the body are closely related to that particular cell. Uh, and like I said, uh, it has uh, a freshness date on it. It'll tell how long that cell's been sitting around doing nothing because these mutations, because there's these age-related mutations that accumulate at 15 or 20 a year. 
Are there other things you can determine besides the age? Well, we, to some extent, we're hoping by understanding more, we can understand also what that cell's been exposed to. Uh, because uh. there are certain kinds of mutations. For example, cigarette smoke causes one kind of mutation, but not another kind of mutation. Or ultraviolet light uh -huh. causes a different kind of mutation than cigarette smoke does. And so in cancer, it's already known that you can tell what a cell's been exposed to. We're trying to adapt that to understand what sorts of things neurons in the brain have been exposed to. Something that I'd love to hear you explain so that uh -huh. I can have a, a hope of grasping it is this mosaicism in genetic disorders, which mm -hmm. I think is something that you've done seminal work on. Uh -huh. What is that? What is the mosaic idea? So the mosaic idea relates to the hundred or so mutations that we're all born with. So every cell is born with about a hundred, maybe two hundred mutations relative to the egg. And that means across our body, uh, we have thousands of mosaic mutations. So mosaic mutations were first described in cancer. You know, they're the things that happen if you smoke cigarettes. You develop mosaic mutations in your lung cells that can cause lung cancer. Uh, our work in epilepsy uh, and in autism was a recognition that even parts of the body that don't look like cancer can also have mosaic mutations that do other kinds of things other than cause, you know, overgrowth. And uh, again, although many of these are functionally uh, silent, don't cause a problem, uh, in some people, uh, one of these mutations might affect an epilepsy gene and cause uh, epilepsy that could be focal in one, just one part of their brain. Uh, and uh, surgeons will then often remove that part of the brain and that can cure the epilepsy. You mentioned autism. Is there anything about this work that gives us greater insight into, into autism, how it, how it develops? Well, autism uh, is a very complicated area, but we think we've learned a couple of uh, worthwhile aspects of it. One of the mysteries about autism is that some kids with autism have challenges in all spheres, social spheres, intellectual spheres, cognitive spheres, whereas other kids with autism are brilliant at some things like math mm. or memory, but are very challenged in the social sphere. And um, that was what motivated us to look to see if uh, mosaic mutations might have a role in autism. Because we had seen that kids sometimes can have epilepsy in one half of their brain and not the other half of their brain, due to a mosaic mutation. And so we wondered, maybe the same thing happens in autism, that a kid can be great at stuff, some stuff and not as good in other stuff because they literally have a mutation that's just in one part of the brain and not the other. Uh, and we have found that that is the case for a small fraction of kids with autism, that they do literally have a mutation in part of their brain, but not the whole brain. Hmm. Do you have in mind either short-term or long-term goals that you, you think your work is headed toward, either by you or by the next generation? Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, short-term and long-term goals. Um, I'd like to understand, uh, you know, what uh, relevance this age-related accumulation of mutation has for other uh, age-related degenerative diseases of the brain. 
for example, uh, ALS, uh, you know, Luke Eric's disease where motor neurons degenerate. Uh, and is this a general phenomenon that, that this is, is, is this a general mechanism how age and specific disease mechanisms interact? Um, and so, uh, that seems like a relatively attainable, rel you know, somewhat short-term goal. Uh, you know, there's a longer-term goal, and it's just a big unanswered mystery in neuroscience, and that relates to some of our other work that's gotten, that's been around the, the evolution of the brain. Uh, you know, the profound mystery is just is how human behavior maps onto the genome. Uh, and uh, so that's something mm -hmm. I probably am not going to get around to in my lifetime. The, the next generation will have to sort that one out. But again, our behaviors are under evolutionary selection. Uh, and therefore, they must be written in some way in the genome. Uh, and yet, uh, exactly how those those behaviors are written in the genome is is, uh, is a profound mystery at this point. This is really exciting to hear about this. I, I can I imagine the picture you saw of your sister having fun <laughs> in the lab is nothing compared to the fun you must be having making these incredible discoveries. Things we had no chance of knowing anything about for centuries, and now you're getting to the heart of it. Congratulations on all of that. Yeah, thank you so much. It's an incredible privilege to be a scientist. I mean, I'm incredibly lucky, and I'm particularly lucky because I work with people that are smarter than I am, who come up with all the good ideas, and I get to share the excitement of discovery with them. That's beautifully said with generosity. Thank you for talking with me, and congratulations again on the Kavli Prize. Thanks, and thanks so much for your commitment to communicating science. You know, it's really important. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank I, you. It's really, really important. It's, it's not only important, it's fun for me, just as science is fun for you. Yeah. But it's, it's so great to get that message to people that science is fun. It really is. And to try to ignite them with that sense of fun themselves. Right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Buddha Zogby is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Molecular and Human Genetics, Neurology, and Neuroscience at Baylor College of Medicine. She's also an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the director of the Jan and Dan Duncan Neurological Research Institute at Texas Children's Hospital. Christopher Walsh is the Bullard Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School, chief of the Division of Genetics at Children's Hospital Boston, and an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with two more 2022 Kavli Prize laureates. Connie Arts is a Belgian astrophysicist who studies starquakes, the shuddering of distant stars that reveal their inner secrets, including their age. 
If you were to be able to sit inside the star, it would be very similar to sitting inside a concert hall and listening to the sound waves that propagate into the concert hall. Of course, we don't sit inside stars, so we can't really literally hear it. And uh, some people say that's all the better so, because the sound is, is not like the symphony of an orchestra, but the analogy is there. Connie Art's probing of stars is also helping the search for Earth-like planets that orbit around those stars. George Whiteside's long career is a major reason that nanotechnology, the fabrication of incredibly complex machines on an incredibly tiny scale, has revolutionized manufacturing. Among the many ambitious projects his team is exploring is a way to take the hugely expensive and energy-consuming data farms that store trillions of bits of information that the world produces every day and replace those data farms with just molecules. We've worked out some very good methods of storing information just using molecules, and it works fabulously well. We couldn't ask for more. The question now is, can we do arithmetic and mathematics using information stored in mixtures of molecules, and that's the problem we're working on at the time. And will this be useful? The answer is I don't know. It works. From the very big to the very small, two of this year's Kavli Prize laureates, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program. The world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.